But uh, wait, he gives a lot of interviews these days about his life and career, and you know, he's really involved in, uh, uh, in hockey and, and children's hockey in Canada. And, uh, he's, often asked, he's often asked by parents, like by hockey parents, why don't you tell my kids how hard you had to practice to get that great? Like, tell, tell them all the hours you put in, because he did, right? Just all the time, constantly. He lived and breathed it, and it wouldn't leave the rink in the backyard, just kept practicing and practicing. But he knows what the parents are after. He knows that they, they're just going to take this and use it as, a, uh, as this rigid structure to impose on their children. And he says, no, it wasn't like that. It wasn't, it wasn't practice. It wasn't mandatory practice. There was no mandatory practice for me. I spent that time because I love doing it. It's, it's just what I love to do. It's what I was passionate about. And so that's what directed my energies. That's what I, what I poured it into. My friends would come and ask me, let's go to the movies, Wayne. No, I'd rather be alone for two hours on the rink whacking pucks because that's what he wanted to do. He would rather think about the game in his head. And, and that's, that contributed to, uh, to his great skills. And it, it shows the passion that he had. He, he did it not out of... Uh, a sense of drudgery, or, or he, wasn't, he wasn't dragged to practices against his will. He, he excelled in it so much because he was doing what he loved to do. And I put that before you by way of introduction today just to ask, what do we as God's people love to do? Uh, is there a difference between what we feel forced to do or obligated to do? But what, what is the passion in our hearts and what drives us and what do we love to do? If you're even slightly familiar with the Old Testament, you'll be aware that most of the history of the nation of Israel consists of reminders from God sent through the prophets that the people are not living the way God has has called them to live, and God disciplines them, and he calls them back, and he reminds them again and again, here's what you were saved for. Come back to the great calling that I have given you. This is one of the reasons we should get excited to be learning from the book of Exodus and from the covenant that's made at Mount Sinai. When God's people lose their way, he needs to call them back to what they were created for. Knowing what's in the covenant helps us to make a lot more sense of much of the Old Testament, as Israel's constantly called back to it. And more than that, looking into the covenant for us, uh, it can teach us about the plans that God has for his people and about the plans Jesus has for his new covenant people today in the church, what we've been redeemed by the cross for. We get a reminder about what we were created and redeemed for, and it's my prayer this morning that this would help reshape and reorient our passions and our loves and our imagination towards the things of God. Let's just recap what we covered last week in the first half of our our two-part sermon on the covenant at Sinai. We saw that by bringing the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, God was actively working to keep those earlier promises he had made to Abraham. And his purpose in redeeming his people was that they would learn to walk in his ways and be holy as he was holy, so that they would teach and and mediate and spread his blessing and the knowledge of the Lord through the whole rest of the earth, that all the nations of the earth would ultimately be blessed by them as they walk in God's ways. We read about the Lord's intention to make a covenant agreement with the nation of Israel. And in order to give them the terms of this covenant, the Lord makes a personal appearance on Mount Sinai. He descends to the top of the mountain in thunder and dark cloud 
and loud trumpet sounds and fire and trembling. And the people hear God's voice speak the Ten Commandments directly to them as they're gathered around the mountain, and they quake with fear. They hear with their own words the voice of God as he speaks the Ten Commandments to them, and they want to make this covenant. They want to be God's people and to do all that he requires of them, but at the same time, they're terrified by his holy nature, and they realize that they need a mediator. They need someone to stand between them and this holy God, and so in God's grace, Moses continues to play that role for them. And chapters 19 and 20 leave us with this tension. The Lord is a holy God and a consuming fire, and yet... He is also the Lord who has acted mercifully to bring them out of Egypt and to bring them to himself and to call them to be his people. So today we get to look at the actual signing of the covenant between the Lord and his people at Sinai. But what do you do before you sign your life away on a big contract? What must you do before you put your name on the dotted line and give your word to keep an agreement that will potentially change your life? mortgage contract, business loan, adoption papers, wedding license. What do you do before you sign your life away on the dotted line? You read the fine print. You double check what's actually required of you before you sign. And perhaps you consider the consequences if you can't fulfill your part of the agreement. And that brings us to Exodus chapters 21 to 23. We'll see the covenant signed in chapter 24. But before that, we have this little section uh, before the climax, before the signing, that's often called the Book of the Covenant. And this is a bunch of extra laws and ordinances and rules that Israel must agree to keep and live by as a nation. If I had to speculate, I would hazard a guess that this is the spot where a lot of well-meaning I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover runs, runs into its first real uh, hurdle. Uh, Sometimes we get a little bit lost in all of these laws. And it's my hope that by approaching this the way we are today, by, by looking at chapters 19 to 24 all together in the context of the covenant God is making with his people, hopefully this will uh, maybe save some future read-throughs of Exodus and help us from getting lost in the details of these laws. Chapters 21 to 23 are essentially the fine print of the covenant with Israel. And what these laws do is they take the standard that was given in the Ten Commandments and they apply them to specific situations in everyday life that Israel is going to face when they live as a nation in the Promised Land. There's this great single-panel comic strip that shows Moses standing there on top of the mountain holding the Ten Commandments, and he says, Oh, these are really great! No one will ever be confused about what's right and wrong again. But we are still confused about what's right and wrong. All the time we struggle with with what to do in specific situations and how to apply these laws. And one way to think about the additional laws we find in chapters 21 to 23 is that these are commentary on the Ten Commandments and application from the Ten Commandments. They teach the people how to take the perfect standard God gave them in the Ten Commandments, and then apply them to areas in their everyday life. As New Covenant believers, as Christians today, the Ten Commandments apply directly to us. But these additional laws in chapters 21 to 23 don't. 
it would be a mistake to take them and try to enforce them here in Canada directly as is. It would also be a mistake to skip over them and think they have nothing to teach us. Because the best way for us to learn from these laws is to think about what they were doing for Israel, for the original hearers. They are specific examples to take the holiness of God as revealed in his commandments and then apply them to the details of everyday life. In possibly the least exciting analogy I could ever give, uh, these are like word problems in math. Right? You, you, you learn the theory in math and the theory is never going to change, but you can't do anything with it until you can actually apply it to, to the details in life. Uh, someone can, can count, and that's great, but if they can't give you your change at the till when, they're, when you're buying something, uh, it doesn't matter how well they can count. So as Christians today, these laws don't tell us what to do, but they can teach us how to learn what to do. They can give us an example of how to take the Ten Commandments and and apply them. To do that today, to help us, we're going to administer a few guidelines on on how these chapters work. Uh, The first guideline that we're going to see here is the the law, the, the laws in chapters 21 to 23, they further reveal God's glory by expanding on and applying what is required by the Ten Commandments. These laws take what's said in the Ten Commandments and they interpret them and, uh, and apply them. Many of the laws are not really surprising. Most nations in the world have laws against stealing things and regulations for how that plays out, how someone pays back. Most nations have laws against break and enters, laws against property damage, laws against murder. Uh, so that's not what's surprising about this section. But no other nation has ever had a legal constitution that assumes a binding relationship with God Almighty himself. That's what makes these unique. If you look at uh, chapter 22, we might bounce around a little bit through, uh, through, through this section, so I'll keep you on your toes. But chapter 22, and beginning in verse 18, there are a few brief warnings against serious actions that require the death penalty. This talks about sorcery, bestiality, idolatry. Nasty stuff. These are examples of sins that are not directed against other people. These are not sins that you do that hurt other people around you. These are sins that undermine the true worship of God himself. Things like these are associated with false worship, uh, with, with idols that are not God, and they represent violations against the first half of the Ten Commandments. Left unchecked, they would do terrible things to the ability of Israel to coexist with a holy God. The active presence of the Lord and the everyday worship of him are assumed. And so improper worship in Israel is a very dangerous thing. There's another side to God's close proximity to his people. That's because the Lord dwells in their midst. He is expected to take an active role in administering justice. That doesn't mean there won't be a need for honest judges and good rulers and leaders, but it does mean that God is the one to whom the people are ultimately accountable to. If you're there with me at uh, chapter 22, verse 21, we're going to read the section starting there and just follow along and listen to the commands God gives. These are commands to protect the vulnerable people in Israelite society. And as I read them, listen for the active role that the Lord himself expects to take in the way these commands work themselves out. 
Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner, visitor, or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God expects justice and mercy to define life among his people because he himself is righteous and merciful. And he is the only one, he is the one that they will be accountable to. If you skip down the page a little further to chapter 3 and verse 4, we'll pick up there and read some more. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you know, like you do, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it you shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." Can you see how these laws would have functioned to provide constant reminders of the character of God himself? You see also the way they reveal more and more of what was required in the Ten Commandments. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, hates you, you can't just leave your enemy to to suffer without helping him. You have to help him rescue his donkey. Do you see how the commandment against murdering already in the Old Testament already extends beyond just murdering someone to the point where you're not allowed to just passively let the guy who hates you suffer? And do you see how the commandment against bearing false witness already extends to forbid giving and taking bribes that would pervert justice? And then here's verse 9 again. You shall not oppress a sojourner, for you know the heart of a sojourner. Because you were like that in Egypt. Remember that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery. You know what it's like to be down and out. And God did not rescue his people from oppression so that they could turn around and oppress others. You're supposed to reflect God's character in the way you care for your neighbors. So these laws reveal God's glory and goodness. But we do have to acknowledge that I'm sort of cherry-picking here. And there are a lot of laws between chapters 21 and 23 that come across as fairly offensive and strange to modern readers. And I was going to wade into some of them, but I think for the sake of time, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to, have to just give the principle uh, and let you to work this out with some of them. Uh, but to help us see what's going on in, in all of these laws, we need to recognize another guideline that's at work here, and that is 
these laws are exposing the sinfulness of sin. They are given into a broken situation, and they are going to highlight what's wrong with the society that they're given to. Unlike the Ten Commandments that reveal a perfect moral standard that never changes, the specific laws given show how fallen situations are, are inherently sinful, they are broken, they violate the Ten Commandments, and the laws of God impose restraints in order to limit the amount of harm sinful people can do to one another. To say it another way, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, one rule was required. That's all we needed. In the wasteland of a fallen and corrupt world, there are many rules, and many rules cannot bring about righteousness. They can only hint at God's righteousness while limiting the amount of harm sinful humanity can inflict on one another. In these laws, God speaks into a broken situation, and he shows his holy standard, and he limits the potential for abuse. The, he provides protection for the, for the vulnerable, and he prevents those who might seek to use their power to, uh, to impose their way on others. These laws don't provide a perfect system because a perfect system would be useless in the hands of a sinful people. What they do is make people aware that the way they treat one another inside of their current system, they will have to answer to God for that. They will have to answer to God for the way they behave within their system. There's a third guideline at work in this body of laws, and that's this. The law connects the mundane elements of life to the holy reality of God. Philip Ryken puts it this way. The book of the covenant is about living for God, not just when we are standing at the foot of the mountain and gazing at his awesome glory, but when our neighbor borrows a video and fails to give it back, when someone is spreading rumors, or when an argument turns into a fist fight. In other words, these laws are about real life. There are rules in the book of the covenant about hiring workers and about being workers. There are rules about petty disputes and murders. There are rules about what happens when your neighbor's ox kills your ox. There are rules to protect the needy. There are rules to punish the greedy. And all of them work together to reveal that God is interested in how his people act in every area of their lives, especially the places where you spend most of your time, with your family, at work, at home, at rest. This comes through really strong in the middle of chapter 23 in the laws about the Sabbaths and the annual festivals. There was a rhythm to live under God. They would never forget that they were God's people. There was no part of their year or their day or their week that, that was exempt from God's touch on their lives. The festivals were important reminders of the way God had saved them and blessed them, but they also offered some commentary on the fourth commandment, to honor and keep the Sabbath. Keeping the commandment means working hard when it's time to work. It means taking a break when God says it's time to take a break in order to acknowledge your trust in him. It means making provision for those who don't have the same opportunities to work and rest that you do. It means seeing God's hand at work in how you got to where you are and where you are going to be tomorrow. It means bringing offerings out of your material blessings to God as a sign of thanksgiving and trust in him. So three guidelines at work that help us hopefully navigate some of these uh, sometimes strange laws. They, they're revealing God's glory. 
They're applying the Ten Commandments to specific situations to teach the people how to do that on a regular basis. They, they are given in the reality of a fallen, messy world, and so this sin highlights the brokenness of that world, and they bring obedience to the God who gave the Ten Commandments into every sphere of their lives, particularly the normal parts and the everyday parts. And after these three guidelines, we need to add one more to us today. There's a New Testament principle that we need if we're going to apply the Ten Commandments to our lives. And that principle is this. Jesus himself is the ultimate authority and the interpreter of the law. Jesus, as the Word of God incarnate and the mediator of the New Covenant, is the ultimate authority on how we as Christians should apply the law to us. And it doesn't take long to see how Jesus both internalizes and intensifies our accountability to God's standards. Matthew 5.28 But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law takes the commandment against murder in the Old Testament to show that we must actually care for our neighbors, not just not kill them. But Jesus extends that to love your enemies and pray for them. Be perfect, Jesus says in Matthew 5.48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' teaching is the most direct application of the law to us, and he sums it up perfectly in the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So even though it would be strange and wrong to attempt to enforce these laws in Exodus, in everyday life now, we find that we do have the same task. We have the task of taking God's perfect glory and his perfect character and applying that to our decisions in our daily lives. We have to do what these laws do, even though we don't do what they say. By way of reminder from, uh, from where we were last week in Exodus 19, God is giving the, giving the covenant to his people because when they keep it, that's how they're equipped to fulfill his calling on their life. When, when God's people keep his laws and obey his precepts, that's what equips them to be a holy nation and to do what he's called them to do. And if you look at with me just briefly in Exodus 23, verse 20, there's one final section of covenant stipulations before we get to the actual signing. This is essentially a reminder that if the nation obeys God's commands, God will do his part and give them victory in the promised land. We're just going to be concerned with with the verses 20 to 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God tells his people that his very presence will go with them in the angel of the Lord. Look at the details. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I'll be on your side and you'll have victory. But pay careful attention to him and his voice. Don't rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. Really quick point before we move on. 
the presence of God in the midst of his people is not an excuse to ignore the covenant. It gives more motivation to keep the covenant. If we consider for a moment the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain, well, what greater way to transgress that commandment than for God's people who are called by his name to act like they're not his people at all? The final section of chapter 23 is this solemn reminder that keeping God's law is the way to live for Israel. When they keep it, God will keep his part and they'll be able to live according to their calling. Now, we today are not called to pick up sword and shield and conquer the land of Canaan. We are called to wage war with the sin that dwells in our flesh. We are called to serve others the way Christ has served us and to proclaim the good news about our Savior and all that he's done for us. We're called to act as salt and light in the midst of a dark world. And the way we do that today is by striving to obey the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to do that with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let's not let us take the name of our God and Savior in vain. Let's remember what we were called to. But now we need to change our perspective from considering the part of the covenant that's required of us uh, and to move in the text from the part that is required of Israel and to consider God's greater part in this covenant and in this relationship. We're going to read the defining moment when both God and Israel sign on the dotted line, when the covenant that has been the topic of discussion since chapter 19 is made official. And we'll start reading at uh, chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the pe- of the people t- of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the rest of the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. In order for both parties to sign on the dotted line, the covenant needed to be ratified in blood. The blood shows that this is a matter of life and death. In the ancient world, you sacrificed an animal and you used its blood to make a covenant in order to demonstrate what was going to happen to the side who failed to keep the covenant. Now I ask you, after spending the better part of 30 minutes examining all that the law requires, which is summed up in this way, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Can Israel keep this covenant? Can anyone? The danger of legalism tweaks and lowers God's standard to the point where we think we can accomplish it on our own. But the wonderful effect of having a big picture of God's law, of fully understanding his holy and righteous character, is that his people are then forced to seek after grace. Between Israel and the Lord, who kept their part in the covenant? God did. God kept his part in the covenant. Who broke the covenant? 
The people did as individuals and they did as a nation. But who died? In this instance, it was the ox that supplied the blood for the covenant. But when God is faithful and his people are not, how does a righteous and faithful God make provision for his people? God keeps not only his part of the covenant, but he keeps their part as well. And eventually, by sending his son Jesus Christ, God will keep both Israel's part of the covenant through Jesus' obedience, and he will pay the penalty for their failure through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The blood of Jesus will usher in a new covenant, the one that believers are saved under today, saved from their sins and saved to eternal life. As believers in Jesus' name and participants in the new covenant, we receive forgiveness for our sins, we receive eternal life, we receive a holy calling as God's people, and we are consecrated for God's service, cleansed from the inside out and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit writes God's law on our very hearts and teaches us to love it and keep it. The more clearly we see God's holiness in his laws, the greater our understanding of our own sin becomes. And as our knowledge of our sin grows, our appreciation for Jesus' sacrifice grows too. We should not hate the law. We should love it because it teaches us how much greater and greater Jesus' sacrifice was for us. It also teaches us the way to live for God now. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven much loves much. If the idea of keeping God's law feels like drudgery, it's because our hearts don't really want to keep it. Our hearts are still chasing after something else. It's because our deepest loyalty is not actually to God. We have other gods before him and other idols that we haven't yet given up. You cannot hold on to your old life of sin and live a new life with Christ. It's impossible. The old life must die. Either Jesus dies that death for you and you die to sin, or you die with your sin apart from Christ. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night before he was betrayed and crucified, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup that is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. He brought together two incredible parts of Exodus chapter 24. First of all, it's the blood of the covenant, the old covenant and the new But second of all, it's the picture of a covenant meal that gets shared between God and his people. Look what happens in verse 9, after the the covenant of blood. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The first time I read those words, I had to go back and read them again because I thought I'd read them wrong. This is the same God who a few chapters earlier told the people from a thundercloud of glory on top of the mountain, don't get too close to the mountain or you'll die. This is the holy God of Israel who sinners cannot behold without dying. And the representatives of the people saw him, and he did not lay a hand on them. They shared a meal with him, and they lived. I don't know what happened. I don't fully understand what they saw. But I suspect I know what made it possible. There's blood on the altar of a gracious God. The blood that Moses poured out on the altar first points to the way God would one day accept Christ's offering as the atonement necessary. And then there's blood 
on the people. After God accepts the sacrifice, the rest of the blood is thrown on the people. It's graphic, but it's necessary. There has been a death because of sin, but it was not the sinful people who died. Atonement has been made, and now God is able to share an intimate meal with his people. He's able to express the fact that reconciliation is complete, that they're able to try to keep their side of the covenant without fear of the punishment of death now. I know we're late, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip to the end here. The final image that we have in Exodus 24, after the covenant is made, is that Moses heads up the mountain, and he ascends to approach God, and he disappears into a thick cloud, and he's lost from sight. Moses goes farther up and farther in. The law and the covenant have the look of death, to those of us who approach them from the outside as sinners. But Christ transforms that through his death and resurrection. The law that would once tell a sinner, come no further, now tells the redeemed in Christ, this is the very way to heaven. This is the way to draw near to God. Come on up, further up and further in. I'm going to end by reading you the words of... uh, These are penned by John Newton, uh, but they've been put to music more recently. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, Justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name to you now. And I pray for those who may be here today who are currently under the death prescribed by the law. Lord, we pray that, that you would give repentance that leads to life. We pray that you would open up eyes so that they can see and behold the, the perfect atonement that was made for them in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand on a deeper level the reality that we cannot We cannot earn righteousness in your eyes, but we can receive righteousness through the sacrifice made by Christ on our behalf. We pray that sinners would repent and turn and find in you hope and grace and life, that you would cover them with the perfect love of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. We pray for those who have, who have let passions and loves for you cool off, and, uh, and have had those passions and loves replaced with other interests. May you call them with your holy beauty to draw nearer through Christ to you today. And we pray for all those who have the opportunity to live for your name's sake in every area of our lives. We pray that you free us from the chains of grudging lip service to your holiness. 
capture our hearts and souls with the priceless and eternal calling that we have in Jesus, our Savior. Come fill us with your power, your wisdom, and your grace, Holy Spirit. Set us apart for the Father's will. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'll leave you with the words from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.